is the week that everybody's been fearing as we watch that first candle get shorter and shorter and shorter and everybody's wondering is it going to burn out so hopefully you'll have a, a shorter sermon this week to to hold on to it <laughs> we'll, we'll see i i'm mindful of it so love the the week of love it, is there anything so blase, anything so passe, that when you hear that we're preaching on love, everybody thinks, oh yeah, I already know about this one, right? And it's not February, so we're not thinking about romantic love, and we all think through John 3.16, and we're mindful of, of what we're getting into, because we start with that, right? You start with John 3.16. Who here can repeat for me right now John 3.16? Prove it. Let's hear it. Oh, okay, all at one time. For God so... <laughs> I got like two parts going. <laughs> all right, all right. So we know it, right? We know John three sixteen. We know that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. And that this kind of feels like Christianity 101. It kind of feels like that entry point that we come into. So we understand these things. We know these things. And we kind of then, I think in a lot of parts, when we get older, when we've been doing this, we move on to the next stuff. My, my loving daughter told me before the sermon started that, uh, She's already heard me preach on love. So <laughs> what am I going to be saying today that's any different? She's, she's already an expert on all this stuff. And I think if we're not careful, that's what we all think. So we already know this one. We, we think we've got this checked off the list. And I think that um, just, you know, for reference, by the way, Karis, <laughs> I've never re-preached a sermon in my life. So, you know, it's brand new. This is for us today. This is exactly what we need. But the challenge, I think, of the sermon today is that I want to remind you of how profound something is that becomes all too common, um, particularly in the church. I think that we give ourselves the, this pass when we look at the fruit of the Spirit on self-evaluation because we think that we already have a tenderness or we think that we have an affection or a, a desire for another person. So we think, I know what love is. I know what it feels like. I know what it looks like. And we can move on. I think we get so far that we individually feel comfortable understanding and practicing love, and we think, there, I've got this done. I think about how my father loved my mother, right? Or I think about how my, my first girlfriend, you know, loved me, or how my best friend shows me this, and I'm not talking about my first girl. I'm talking theoretically about this. <laughs> this idea that we've experienced love in, in some portions of our life, right? So we think, I understand what this thing is, and that's it check like and what we do then is we try to replicate i think that understanding of love without actually asking the questions on whether it's something bigger better or different than that so i think that the question that a lot of people take whenever you want to dig into this topic is maybe as far as this so this is like the preliminary sermon on love this is where you think you might go from here so this is maybe love 102 all right the question is is it love shown is it love practiced based on what we intend or based on how it's received. And that gets slightly more interesting, right? Because you, we can say, I have all the intent of love in my heart, so therefore I'm showing them love. I'm showing them love as I would like love to be shown to me, so therefore, check. Or we have people who say, doesn't matter what's in your heart. What matters is how the other person receives it. So then what we want to do is, as long as they feel loved, then we'll do whatever it takes to get to that point that they feel loved. And that's often then, codependent or unhealthy, and we have all sorts of cascading problems from that as well. And so if we think that the highest form of love is truth-telling, and if they don't receive that, 
then that's their problem. But we still feel like, hey, you know what? I've loved my neighbor today, right? And I don't think that the question on love, this 102 level of love, is actually sufficient, because I don't think it's that simple. Because it can't be that academic that we can say it's one of these things or it's the other thing, and therefore we can understand it and reproduce it. Reality is much trickier. It's much more nuanced. It's much harder than all that. It's really one thing to say, as long as you're loved, as long as they get it, that's on them. So I think there's more choices than what we have before us. Do you all know about one of the largest and uh, longest running wars that's going on right now? It's, it's unknown for a lot of people. I, I, I heard this and I was very intrigued by it and it's gonna seem atypical to you, but it's happening in the ocean right now. So what happened was a few years back, some scientists observed some humpback whales doing something really unusual. Uh, there were some marine observers out there watching the ocean. They saw these humpback whales swimming around. They saw the seal that was getting attacked by some orcas. We know them as the killer whales, right? The seal was getting attacked by those, and the seal was swimming away towards the pod of humpback whales. And the humpback whale turned on its back and got the seal up on its chest and was balancing it back and forth with its, with its flippers, trying to keep it away from the, 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 the other whales. And it protected this seal. And the scientists are watching this, thinking, what is going on? Is this altruism? Is this kindness? Is this, you know, what's happening in our, in our oceans right now? And so they began watching this. They began exploring this. And there's a whole long podcast I heard all about this that you can find, too. But the answer became very interesting when they realized that all the humpbacks that were doing this behavior began it because they had these scars from when they were little baby whales and the orcas were hunting them. So something that looked like kindness, something that looked like altruism, something that, that looked possibly like love for their fellow marine animal was most likely revenge. <laughs> and they were fighting, the, the war was between the humpbacks and the orcas, and it's been going on for a long time, that they just want to deprive the orcas of food whenever they find it, even to their own detriment. And I think that this was, was characteristic kind of, of how we misunderstand love even when it looks abusive, even whenever it, it looks harsh, even when it looks like something that maybe, we, we have this tendency to try to say, is there love there? When, and I think that the way that the world has perceived love has led us so far astray that we assume that this is all that there is to the story. And what we've done is we've lowered the bar on what love is, of what love could be, of lo what love should be, and we say, that's good enough. And it's really to our detriment. So what I'm going to be doing is demuxing love. So demuxing is a technical term. I work in tech. Demultiplier, all right? It means you have one thing coming in and you have multiple things coming out. I actually have a prism here to show you kind of this idea. One thing comes in, many come out. And this is kind of our understanding of love, I think. So before I, I get into this a little bit more, let me ask you another simple question. What came first? The color orange, the fruit orange, I should say, or the word orange? Anybody know the answer? Not Jeremy, because I know Jeremy knows the answer to this. <laughs> the fruit came before the word. What did they call the color orange before the fruit? And I, I mean this by language, by the way, not about which physically came first. We had no word for orange. So the orange came from China, and people in, in Europe had nothing to call that. It was like red or yellow. That was it. 
And so they begin studying this, and what they've kind of found is that, that our brain works better when we have a category to put things in. If you think about colors, they're on a spectrum, right? You, you've got this, this red, orange, yellow. It kind of goes through all these. We don't have names for all of those colors, right? And you get to these little nuanced things where you just start talking about them in one way or the other, and we can't quite define them as clearly as we want to. So when we didn't have a, a word for orange, do you know what they perceive? We didn't see the color that distinctly. We would see it as either red or yellow. It was like reddish or yellowish, but we wouldn't actually have a word for it. We do the same thing with emotions. This is why I have the emotion wheel on here, right? So sometimes we don't know what we're feeling, and we just put it into one camp or the other. And we say, oh, I'm angry. Well, are you angry, or are there more nuanced descriptions for that? I'm feeling good. Well, what does that mean? Are you excited? Are you, you know, overjoyed? How do you actually feel? And this kind of disrupted me. Because I think I put myself into like a few camps. But then when you see like hundreds of words to use to describe this, I feel rather overwhelmed. But if you've ever done any, any uh, counseling or therapy, often one of the things we spend a lot of time doing is helping people understand what they're feeling. And as soon as people can understand what they're feeling, it kind of makes some sense and they can kind of deal with that. But when it's unknown, when there's no word for this, it's really problematic. With disease, th th this is something I've heard doctors talk about too, patients feel better if what's wrong with them has a name. As long as you can identify it, okay, I'm not crazy, I'm not the first person, right? And you feel relieved when something has a name. But here's the problem with the English language. We say love. What do we mean by that? And if you look at the Greek, thankfully, there's a whole lot more going on in the Greek than what we have in English. All of these Greek words get translated in your Bible to love, and they're not the same origin. They don't mean the same thing. If you've been in the church, you've heard this. You probably know this. What I cannot understand for the life of me is why there is no Bible that, that actually translates love as agape or phileo or whatever when you're going through it, or even puts the adjective in front of it, saying unconditional love or brotherly love or all these different understandings. I don't know why that doesn't exist. And in the church, we have often downplayed eros, the erotic love, because it makes people uncomfortable. But it is a wonderful and healthy and full description of what love can and, and should be in the right context. So Galatians 5, 22 to 23, one more time. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This word for love is agape. We translate it as maybe unconditional love, you've heard that, or a love of humanity. It's this understanding of what we often think in the church is like this perfect love, but that's not actually how the words are, are used. But again, we don't have good English representations of this. We've overloaded this word in English, and so I think we downplay into settings like this, but this is actually a call to a very high bar. Matthew 5 says it this way. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends a rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, 
what reward will you get? Not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The call to love is not to do what everybody else is doing. It's not to love your wife or your husband. It's not to love your children. It's not to love those people in community. It's not to love those people who agree with you. Jesus is making it as clear as he possibly can. That's just worldly love. That's just like standard. That, that's the, like normal. So I feel like in the church, we give ourselves this pass because we think love, I know what that is, and I love my mother. Therefore, I've got this one down. Ah, maybe I could be a little bit better, but it's good enough. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, so clearly I've got this one down. Not the only place. 1 Timothy 5.8 says it this way too. Everyone should provide for his own relatives. Most of all, everyone should take care of his own family. If he doesn't, he has left the faith. He is worse than someone who doesn't believe. Oh, but I thought I could just like cut people out of my life whenever things got hard. Like, like this call to love is a high bar that sometimes costs us things that we hold dear. And this is now more challenging than what I think we originally think. Our love, church, and I mean not the world, I mean our love as a church, our love, you could say specifically us, is often not countercultural. Our love is often not challenging. Our love is often not revolutionary. Often it's just natural and worldly. Calling it like I see it. We should love better. <laughs> we should love differently. We should love more fully and completely than what the world does. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, is to love abundantly, to, to love with agape, to, to love my neighbor and my enemy. That to do this in a way that people look at and it doesn't make sense. I think in the church we've had such this idea of, I don't want to be codependent, I don't want to be unhealthy, I, I want to have a, a good, I'm, I'm, I'm all about soul care. You've been around th these things when I've done discipleship or whatever. Your health, your soul health, your emotional health matters so much. But I look at Christ, who loved to the point of giving his own life. And I get stuck by the fact that it cost him everything. It was a sacrificial kind of love. Do we love like that? Or do we say, oh, it wouldn't be good for me if I do it that far? I can only go so far but no further. Now, he had the, the benefit of hearing exactly what the Father's called him to do, being the Messiah, being the perfect incarnation. However, we are called to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, and that is speaking specifically about love. Because, our, because we love our mothers or our children or our spouses or our friends, the idea of love, I fear, slips through the cracks unexamined, but as Brandt said, untasted. It's a fruit of the Spirit that we just assume it's got to be spiritual because I have some love in my life. This kind of love doesn't anchor us in the future. I'm going to talk about that in a bit. Love doesn't bear evidence of a transformed life. It's not dependent on the coming of Jesus or the hope of his return. In the Advent season, that's it. Our love is dependent on Christ or it's not his love. Our love is dependent upon what he's doing or is it just worldly? And this isn't to say that worldly love is, is wrong or evil or anything like that. In fact, this loving of your parents, this loving of your children, that's good. <laughs> but it's not the full picture, right? 
And I think that that's, again, the fear that we have is we want to say it's got to be all good or it's got to be this worldly evil thing. And, and we don't understand that it's raising the bar. It's meeting one thing and then going even further. It's understanding that there's more to this picture than that. So love in the world today. I have a, a video. It's actually after, at the bottom of the sermon that I want us to, to see. This is something that I think in tech you've probably seen. Um, I laugh at it pretty much every time that I see it. So This is a square. Can you guess which spot that goes in? The square. In? That's right. It goes in the square hole. Yes. Okay. And how about this rectangle? That one? Also the square. That goes in there too. Yeah. Up next, we've got this thin rectangle. The thin rectangle. Can you guess where that goes? The thin rectangle. That's right. It goes in the square hole. <laughs> and up next, a cylinder. Hmm. The circle. I think that goes in the circle. The square hole. <laughs> Now, we've also got this semicircle right here. Do you see a slot that would fit the, the semicircle? semicircle? The, sem the semicircle. That's right, it's the square hole. <laughs> okay, up next, the triangle. We know what hole that goes the into, triangle. right? Triangle. That's right, the square <laughs> hole. And up, la up next, we have the arch. The arch, the arch. And you guessed it. The arch. It goes in the square oh. hole. <laughs> <laughs> so, maybe if you haven't experienced this, it doesn't hit the same way, but it hits my soul in a very painful way. To, to, to see things get abused, to see things that, that we think we have an understanding for just kind of not used in the way that the Lord intended, right? And I feel like when we talk about love this way, whenever we've lowered this bar, whenever we've made it something else altogether, we've missed what is actually intended whenever he's calling us to love. I'm going to do a, a very terrible uh, thing in the church, a, a very bad form of preaching. And those of you who have preached or who desire to preach, don't do what I'm about to do here now. I'm going to take a, a very contentious and hot button issue and use it to talk about something that is not intended by that. So as soon as I begin this, a lot of people are going to have polarizing opinions and think I'm going to be talking about something else, and I'm not. You'll see where I'm going for this. Y'all know those road signs that your neighbors have out? Maybe you have them out. In this house, we believe. Yes? And now y'all are all there. Okay. So, and by the way, there's going to be people in this room on both sides of this. So just deal with that. But in this house, we believe all this sort of stuff. And there's one line of it that I just cannot take. And that line is love is love. And it's not for the reason you're all thinking. We could talk about that another time, but this is Advent. We're talking about love. The reason is because love is so much more than what's intended by that. Because we have just erased all of this complexity and reduced it to the single word, which makes no logical sense. The love of a father for their son, the, the love of a, of a husband for his wife. Love is not love. Love is so much more beautiful and complex and powerful than that. And I believe, I legitimately believe that the fact that we've lost this language to express love has damaged our souls. And by this, I mean particularly as a teenage boy growing up in this culture and society where you don't understand your own hormones and people talk about love and all of a sudden everything gets brought together into saying, well, I guess that this is what love is. And you have people who say, I love you, and then there's sexual abuse, and then they think, this must be what love is. And this whole idea of love is tainted and, and brought down into one common thing, 
when that's not in, at all. Our language has betrayed us. Our language has led us into a, a course of collision where what is meant to be pure and holy and good and beautiful has become just one size fits all, and it has corrupted us. We live in a world that's confused love with sex and screwed us up. We've blurred the lines between physical desire and intimate concern to our own demise. And we hold love at the same time as the highest good. So we say God is love. We say it's all these things. And then people have to, to demux this idea of love and God from what's happened to them and what they've work, walked through, what somebody else has called love. And it just doesn't make sense because it doesn't make any sense because we have one word and it doesn't apply in all these scenarios that people are using it, especially when this is done with children and when they don't have an understanding for this. And we have one word to talk about this. I think this part of the problem is that even in the church, we fall into a worship of love. Not the source of the love, but the idea of love. We've separated from God and we think that as long as we love, this is the highest good. There's this book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. You read this one? Fantastic book. Love The Great Divorce. It's not about divorce. <laughs> it's about heaven and hell. It's, it's a fictional story of people in a bus ride going from heaven to hell. There's solid people, and there's ghosts. And the things that are really real are very solid. And the things that are not real are just kind of like misty, like they don't really have substance to them. That's kind of the, the basis for this. And there's so many misunderstandings by, the, by these people about love. And the most tragic, maybe the most tragic figure, is there's this mother called Pam who is grieving the loss of her son. And we think about this, and we think of the love that a mother has for her son. She lost her son, I think it was like to the flu or something at a very early age. I think they give you some backstory about Pam. And what ends up happening is she's grieving so much that she cannot proceed. She cannot move forward. She is trapped. And at the same time, she's praising herself, saying, but look how much I love my son. Look how much this matters to me. This idea of love is so beautiful, it's so complex, it's everything to her, and she is lost in this idea that I am made by this relationship. I am made in this one place. And she's stuck. There's no malice, there's no hate, there's no judgment even coming from God. What in fact is said by the angel character in this is you, you just can't move forward. As soon as you can move forward, you will move forward. But you are so stuck here that the grass itself hurts your feet because the grass is so hard that when you as a misty figure, and again, this is all metaphor and allegory. If you read the book, it'll make more sense. But it's so, you're so misty that the grass is too hard. It'll, you'll crumble if you were to come into the presence of God. That's what love does. Love is, is severe. Love is, is a high bar. Love is amazing. It's transformative. We often cannot handle what real love is. I believe that. We've tainted it. We've lowered it. We've made it base. We've made it so many things. Love, this might be the turning point for many of us, is treaty language. Love is treaty language. This is a biblical thing. This is actually going into ancient Hebrew. You know, whenever you're, you're in a treaty with somebody, like a between two countries, that sort of thing, the language used between the, the king or the emperor who comes in and conquers another land and puts them in his fealty is love language. And he talks about, you will love me, you will serve me, 
blah, 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 blah. That, like, because you love me, you will do as I command. Does that sound familiar? It's treaty language. It's the language that a reigning king uses to explain the relationship to his new subjects. And it is troubling for us because whenever we read certain passages of scripture, we read love and hate and we think of it as romantic or we think of it as brotherly. We don't understand that it's actually treaty language when often used in scripture. How many of us have read Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated and thought, oh, I'll come back to that one later, <laughs> right? Or we have read in the teachings of Jesus, you must love me and you must hate your parents. Okay, I thought we're supposed to love even our enemies and, and we kind of put it on the shelf because it's like, I don't know how to handle that because our understanding of love is about this big. We need to demux love. We need to understand it saying a lot more. This is a big one. I'm dropping with you all some pretty deep theology for Sunday morning. I apologize, but hopefully you're, you're hanging with me. The idea of treaty language means that they had entered into a covenant with somebody. Jacob, I have loved. Jacob, I have brought into my covenant. Esau did not benefit from my covenant. I don't have a covenant with him. And what did we see in history? Yes, that's where the, the treaty was. That's where the, that's where the covenant was. It was with Jacob. That was where the covenant was realized. And he's saying, you must have a covenant with me, even beyond your family. You must commit yourself to me so that we can work this thing out together. It's not love and hate in the way that we think about. It's treaty language. And it honors him as king. It honors him as the ruler, as the one who sets the tone, who, who has the right and the privilege to tell us where to go. And yet there is affection in, in that. Yet there is intimacy in that. There's an offer of protection in that. I, I, I shared this a few weeks ago. I've been blown away by the understanding of what a king actually is. I think with the passing of the Queen of England, it kind of made me look at this whole thing a little bit differently. People have an affection for the queen. I'm American. I don't really understand this. It feels to me like a figurehead, or it feels to me like somebody who, by birthright, thinks that they can tell me what to do, and, and it, it upsets my sensibilities. But remember, the Jewish people longed for a king a person to fight on their behalf, a person to enter into a treaty and say, you've got to be mindful of my people, a person to take from the, the, the rich and to provide for the poor because in his kingdom, prosperity will be shared, a person who would come in and who would settle between you and your neighbor whenever there was confusion about what was right and wrong, that person who would look out for you and your best interests. That's what a king was meant to do. That's the ideal. That's the, the lovely picture when they're saying, Lord Jesus, come. We have somebody to take our burdens and our best interests beyond even what we know ourselves and to care for us. That's treaty language. When he's our king and there's love and affection, it's not just the, the, the touchy-feely, I feel great. It's bigger than that. It's better than that. And yet there is still that affection there's still that intimacy. Remember that love is distinct from kindness, and gentleness, and goodness. I told you I'd come back to this, and here I am. Love ties us to the future. Love ties us to the future. This is, I think, a very confusing thing because now it sounds like we've gone into science fiction. We're not clearly in science fiction, but this is the biblical reality that we have. Think about how a treaty, it tells you where you came from, right? but it designs and destines your future as well, right? There's treaties that are not meant to address just what happened. They're meant to set up the rules 
for what's to come, right? And so this understanding of, of love being something for us in the future that, that designs us for the future, that brings us into the future, is what we see in 1 Corinthians 13. Y'all know 1 Corinthians 13? If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, not, uh, not all the weddings, but many weddings will use this. Love is, love is, right. See, y'all know where this is going. But what it ends with is this beautiful, wonderful part that says, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. These three remain. When everything else passes, love remains. We can understand, looking forward, that love is there for us in the future, that things that we have here now continue into the future. They're connected. It's gonna, when everything else passes away, when everything else is confused, when everything else is lost, love remains. It brings us from where we were to where we are to where we will be because it's treaty language, because it's brought us to a better place. Let me ask you this. How many times does your love pull you backwards? How many times does worldly love put something on your shoulders that you can't hold? Or we try to love because we try to ignore the past, skip over those things. Biblical love is a high bar to a love that is beyond what we have in the flesh. But like I said, love here we're saying is a fruit from spending time with the Spirit. This whole idea of Advent, the collision of what was and what will be, this whole understanding that right now, when we're in step with the Spirit, we have the coming of Jesus and we will have him coming more fully. This understanding that Advent is looking back and looking forward, love is central to all of this. And the fruit of the Spirit is central to all of this. What is countercultural? What is revolutionary? What is Christ-like, Spirit-filled love? A love that is perfect as the Father is perfect. A love that is more than what the Gentiles and non-believers have themselves. So what I think you you've might have been able to follow is that we kind of broke love into these different components. I didn't get to spill them all out as much as I would in a more detailed thing if that candle wasn't burning down low. <laughs> but, but we broke love out into all these understandings, and now I'm kind of collapsing them back in and saying that love and all of these things is actually called to a higher bar. It's called to acknowledge that he's king over all of those things. The treaty language is that God is in control wherever we find love, wherever we have a spark. It leads me to this. I can tell when someone's been spending time in step with the Spirit, when their capacity to love, when their willingness to love, when the ease of their love increases. Have you ever been around somebody who just oozes love? And you see somebody doing something hurtful or insulting or just condescending and they look at them with love. And you look at those people and you're just like, they're making a different stuff. Right? Because my patience would have run out a long time ago. <laughs> there's something about them. There's something about their love. There's something that has transformed them that their love isn't what I'm experiencing whenever I tell somebody, oh yeah, I love you, you know. So it's like the, the window out of the prism. I think that love is more complex and beautiful than what we initially think. It's not a first step as we progress to higher things. So what makes this different? Let me say it this way. Have you noticed that there's no object of love mentioned in the fruit of the Spirit? You will love your family. You will love people generally. You will love 
God. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You know, y- there's places where we have an object, but in the fruit of the Spirit, there's no object that's offered to us. You will, be, you will tell that you're spending time in the Spirit, when you're in step with the Spirit, when you are loving, generally. <laughs> and I think that that's really hard for us. I, I have a problem with this. You know, that I can say I love people generally. I, I love this. You know, it's that guy I have a problem with. Like, you know, what, however we think about these things, that, that we allow ourselves this area of grace and gray that, that you know, I, of course it makes sense. You know, we hear this, this joke. I make the joke. People are the worst, right? Why do we say that? Because it's frustrating. Because it's tiring. Because it, it's hard. Because people say things that are insulting and, and they hurt your feelings. And, and how are we supposed to live in a world where there's poverty and racism and, and there's ageism and there's all the sexism? And, and how are we supposed to live when there's people actually going to war and fighting with each other? How can we have a love that's transcendent, that's more than what we understand here? But if we can look at our neighbor and not see someone worthy of sacrifice, of pursuit, of glory, then we've not been engaged with the Spirit long enough. Every person we encounter in this world is worthy of pursuit, of grace, of understanding. Do we believe, do we feel, do we experience that? Or do we accept it theologically and we accept it for some people, but we don't yet feel it ourselves? Understand this is really the case. We hide people behind caricatures. We, we put them up as, as, oh, they're of that political party or this one, or they're of, of that socioeconomic background or this one, or they've struggled with addiction over here and they haven't over here. We put people in these little boxes that make it easier for us to know how to love or to not love and how to engage and how to not engage. And, and we put it in those things so that we are set. And then we're like, okay, good. Some people can deal with them. I'm not one who can. And as soon as we see people, not as people worthy of pursuit and grace and forgiveness and love, but as somebody that we don't even bother to know their name because we think we know their entire story from some characteristic of their life, we have lowered the bar from what God has called us to to a worldly love. It's a worldly love that Jesus does not call us to when he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount saying, be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. That's what the world does. Let's be different than this world. I think of that line in Men in Black from uh, Edwards. It says, you know, whenever they realize that there's aliens, spoilers, if you haven't seen it, this is in like the first five minutes. Why the big secret? People are smart, they can handle it. And the answer is brilliant. He says, a person is smart. People are dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Panicky, dangerous animals, and you know it. We lose the sight of the individual for the group. We lose the sight of who God has crafted us to be as humans, as people, as somebody that's destined to know the Lord whenever our love is just trying to be so nondescript or generic or whatever that it doesn't actually apply. And this is the challenge. Is love one of these things or both of these things or all of these things or none of these things? What are we talking about? Like I said, we demuxed it and we're collapsing it back in. There's no object, but there's every object. And that object is personal and broad. This is hard to do, church. And I don't think we should ever give ourselves a pass. We shouldn't think, I understand John 3.16. I don't need to hear a sermon on love. We don't have to say, oh, it's the holiday season. I'm going to be with my family. I sang a Christmas carol with them. 
I get what it is. It's, it's what you do for those two hours until you can finally go back home and go to sleep the way that I want to all along. There's a reason why love is the source and object of so much art, poetry, and songs. Because it really is transcendent. One of the things that I like to do when I'm doing discipleship with people is this prayer practice of holding loved ones in memory before love. And if you've read the book Mystically Wired, it's a prayer practice that, that honestly has revolutionized the way that I pray. Because when we pray, often we have an agenda, right? And we know when there's a person who has a prayer need that there's a problem, and we want God to intercede for that. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's often how we pray. It's agenda-driven. It's got specifics in mind. This idea of praying and holding a loved one in love has changed the whole picture for me. And here's how it's described. Call to mind those you love, beginning with the people you feel most connected to and have the least conflict with. Simply name each person, one at a time, and hold the loved one in memory for a moment or two, or for an extended period, before God who is love. During this time, don't focus on their faults or even their pressing needs. Focus on your connection to them and their beloved place before God. Can you do that? Let's do that. <laughs> it's not something that's mystical, that, that, that's unattainable. It's nothing that, that, that's like beyond what we can do. But when we see people as a need, when we see people a, a, as a problem, when we see those things as the most pressing thing, can we trust that God who is love knows all those things and can see beyond all those things and can bring them from where they're at to where they will be? That's the power of this, is trusting God and not even myself. Loving them and bringing them before love, and allowing God to do what he does best. And he knows when it's discipline. He knows whenever it's going to be rebuke. He knows when it's going to be correction. He knows when it's going to be kindness, and gentleness, and encouragement, and exhortation. And we fumble with that. We fumble with that whenever we see a whale protecting a seal, and we think, look, there's love there. No, they just really hate orcas. <laughs> Can we be so humble to trust God in his love? So let's take just a minute. I'm going to read it again, and I want you to really do this. Call to mind those you love, beginning with the people you feel most connected to, who you might have the least conflict with. Simply name each person, one at a time. Hold the loved one in memory for a moment or two before God who is love. Don't focus on their faults or even their pressing needs. Focus on your connection to them and their beloved place before God. struggle sometimes with, to, with words to express how I feel when I do this practice. But it's a good feeling. <laughs> I need to go through that color wheel of emotions and try to figure out if I could get some language for it. But there's intimacy here. Intimacy with the Father. Intimacy with each other. Right. There was a time whenever um, I was in college, it was before Lee and I were 
were dating, but I wanted to be dating. And um, we were in the lobby of, of my, my dorm, and uh, I just had such a desire to be in a relationship with her. And I was really angsty about it. <laughs> <laughs> and there was this moment that I've, I've actually preached about this before. You might have heard this, but it was a supernatural moment, truly. It's one of those God things that comes and touches you and just kind of freezes you in your tracks. <laughs> I was holding the door for her. She walked through, and there's this feeling of just intimacy, not even so much with her as much as contentment with everything. Like, just that feeling, it's all going to be okay. That feeling of being known and knowing somebody else that, that just kind of addresses all of your insecurities, all of your doubts, all of your fears, but also all of your hopes and all of your joys, and it brings it together into a way that just satisfies, satisfies your, your soul. And I had that moment, and it like, took my breath away. And I prayed really quickly, Lord, if I could just have that feeling, like every month or so, like I need nothing else. It was that transformative. And I was thinking about that when I was preaching the sermon, or when I was preparing the sermon, and I realized something, and this is, I'm going to try to not look at my wife right now. Because I realized it was prophetic. I, I've been calling it for so much of my life supernatural. That it was a, a God thing, and it was. But it was prophetic. Because when I was preparing this and realizing kind of what I longed for, that feeling I had was somehow presumptive of what our marriage would be. It's a godly love. And this is not to celebrate us. This is not that whole thing. Because what I'm saying is, this is, I think, the high bar for love. To know and to be known. To trust. For your faults to be examined and even understood. And then, you know what? You move on. The intimacy that's possible. And it's for you. <coughs> it's for you. I believe that that was the whole fact that love remains. For me, that was a prophetic love remains. This is what was in, in God's plans for me. If you have never known this love, you're not going to find it with a person. Not by yourself. That's going to go towards that codependency and all those broken things. But we find it in context of community, of God's creation, of God's plans, of God's purposes, of God's covenant with his presence. Love demands proximity. Love demands intimacy, which is why Jesus had to come. He couldn't stay away. He couldn't watch us from afar. He couldn't, he couldn't watch us suffer and say, man, it's a bit getting bad down there. He came. Love came down at Christmas. Changed the world. Showed us a better way. It acknowledged the shortcomings of human love, and it said, you're better than that. It looked us square in the eyes with our fights, with our arguments, with our warring selves, and said, you're better than that. You deserve better than that. Do you believe that? Have you experienced that? I want to offer you nothing I can give you, <laughs> but I want to offer you a chance to encounter the God who spoke this love into being. A God who in this moment 
can show you a more perfect way. That love will remain. Love is all we need if you want to go the Beatles round. Because our poets sometimes do things better for us than what we can express ourselves. So what I want you to do is, if this touches a part of your soul, either of saying, I don't have it and I need it, or I don't understand it and I want it, and I don't understand how you would not respond to this in one of those ways, you can take some time, you can worship where you're at, you can pray, but if you want community, it's not going to be counseling, it's not going to be people smacking you on the head, it will be us sitting next to you and saying, come Holy Spirit, have your way. Teach us and show us a more perfect way. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to blow out this candle so I have enough for Christmas Eve. Y'all were worried. I'm good. (laughs) And I'm going to bless you that as you go, that you find respite. You find, it's so cheesy, it's so Christian, but you find the real reason for this season because it matters. Advent matters. Christmas matters. It's not just a, Christmas card. It's not just a a well-wishing to each other. It's a transformative thing. It it was transformative then. It's going to remain transformative as long as we press in and stay in step with the Spirit. So come Holy Spirit. Have your way. Would you show us a more perfect way? Would you teach us how to love? Not as the world loves, but as you do. Would you put that love in our hearts and our souls and our minds and our hopes and our joys and our time together and our community? Have your way, Lord Jesus. So we're in a treaty with you. So we're in a covenant with you. We say yes.